I think it was the theologians who first started the idea, later the philosophers took it over, and now some of the scientists are doing the same. What you are comes out in what you do. You see the point? Out of ourselves and into Christ, we must go. This is Chats Under the Sun with Jacob Volk. I hope you enjoy the conversation. (laughs) Okay, okay, let's dive in. Guys, I... Praise God that this worked because this was a bit, I think, a bit to pull together. Jess is still, still has the baby incubating. And so you might get called out of this podcast at any moment um, for that. So this feels like a sitcom episode. <laughs> How's that? Where, like, I don't know. There's always an episode where one of the people gets pregnant and then goes into labor at the most inopportune but hilarious time. Yeah. I'm fully in- expecting at about like two hours into this, you having to dip because Jess goes into labor. So philosophical question would you leave the podcast to do that yes tough <laughs> tough moral question for you tough moral question. john michael's like now how far apart are those contractions and you just start like <laughs> does some quick math okay okay i think we have some time just breathe through them the very first book on my list is oh and it's like your your seventh baby like would you would you leave or is this just old news for you now like is this just a routine that's a that's a very good question. So we just had our seventh child, and thank you, thank you. Oh, that's so sweet. I would absolutely leave because over the course of the many babies, the babies now come so fast, so you don't fool around. For with the first baby, man, I could have goofed around for a long time. You know, second baby, maybe a little bit too, right? Be like, you know what, Sarah, just you're fine. I know, oh, I know, but like we're fine. This one is like, oh, you got okay. Let's go. We're out. Okay, good to know. Yeah. Um, shout out to Hannah and Chloe, who uh, are audience. No? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> oh, you guys are in there. So they're in the background. They're, they're getting some work done, and, and they wanted to be an audience, and I think that's super cool. I'm super grateful for them. So do you guys have any uh, preliminary thoughts before we dive into it? How's, how's the last six months of reading been for y'all? Honestly, I feel like I read a lot of like good books, but unfortunately somewhat boring books. Like my percentage rate of fiction to nonfiction is super sad. Like 92.5% nonfiction. So like that's really not a good ratio. Uh, But I mean, I'm pumped. It's just lots of nerdy stuff. Yeah, exactly the same. I have, um, I read 46, something like that, books in the first half of of this year, and three of them are fiction. Yeah, like 20% fiction for me and 80% nonfiction, which is really sad. I was really excited about my trend of of leaning in a fiction direction last year. Gotcha. And Owen, I think uh, you're going to carry the the podcast on. I I don't know what my percentage is, actually, because I can't get my stupid app to tell me what the percentage is, but... Um, I'm pretty happy. I'm probably a lot closer to 50-50. Oh, good work. Awesome. That's fantastic. Um, I have a, so I've had a, I threw on, on Instagram some, some questions and there's, there's a handful here, but, uh, my mom asked me if there was anyone alive or dead that you could get to join this podcast, like this discussion, who would you want to have? Do you guys have any thoughts on that? Like the boring safe answer, but I think it would be fun to have C.S. Lewis on. Yeah. yeah. The problem is that I think I would just be, and maybe this isn't a problem, maybe it's good, but I would just be scared to say anything. <laughs> Not that you would be a judgmental person or anything, but just because, I don't know, I would just rather hear him talk about books 
than hear me talk about books. Can we resurrect Ben Franklin for this? Like, oh, I just think he would yes. probably be like so <laughs> funny to okay. like do a podcast with. Yeah, I, I agree with both of those. Actually, I like C.S. Lewis. I think he'd be super insightful because you know, he had so many thoughts on reading and books and writing. And I think he'd be a really cool person. I was thinking like uh, Theodore Roosevelt. Yeah. Um, he read, and not necessarily because I'm like in love with the the man so much. It's just he read so much. I think that someone who, you know, would read a book before breakfast kind of thing would be an interesting person to have on here because they have so many points of reference. Yeah, I can bring back my beef that he didn't finish his own autobiography. Yeah, I know. I feel like he's an honorary part of the podcast. Um, But I actually would love to have him on. I feel like I wouldn't be afraid to talk in front of him for whatever reason. I just He seems very fun. What about Peterson? Would you want to do... I feel like I would just be scared. Jordan Peterson? Oh, uh, I don't... I, I, know like he, I, would be I know he has a sense of to, humor, but to I, say something wrong. Yeah, but he would also think, be like, I just want to sit and listen to him talk about his books. Look, if you if you wanted to come on, I wouldn't say no. But he's not making like the top of my list. Well, actually, your father in the belly of the underworld. You're like, okay, <laughs> yeah. Um, Jacob, did you have a person who you would have on? I think I think your mom is actually a really yeah. good answer yes. to this question. Oh yeah, mom she would... asked the question. She is also the answer. I totally Whoa. yeah, that'd be awesome. I feel like Lewis, I don't know if I would want, I feel like it'd be kind of a, if, if Lewis was like, got a kick out of reading like normal stuff like we do, and it was just having as much fun about like whatever was kind of pop, pop culture and just kind of got into that, then it'd be fun. But I, I wonder if he would just spend a lot of time reading the classics and, and just wanted to talk about, you know, the Aeneid for two hours. G.K. Chesterton. I would actually really like to have G.K. Chesterton and he actually was not above reading what was popular. In his time. So he he read weird random stuff. He wrote book reviews quite a bit. Okay. Yeah. And I think he'd be a really... And also, what a, what a mind. I think he'd be fun to have on. Mm-hmm. Um, shout out to Just Thinking. Uh, he asked a, a handful of really good questions, um, which I don't know if I'm going to do all of them, but best uh, tagline or logline that you've seen on a book? And did that like compel you to read it? I know immediately what the answer is oh, man. for me. I, I was, t- yeah, say your answer in a sec. I was just I gotta thinking actually, I got to look it up for I, what the tagline yeah. actually is because it's so long. Okay, go for it. I don't have one in the chamber ready to go, but I love that question because I was thinking about how often I find the taglines of books are sometimes better than the actual title, mm. and I get frustrated by that. Um, th- there was a book I read that was one of my favorite books where it was like, this is what it sounds like what your taste in music says about you or like what you, why you have the taste in music you do something like that. And it was like, this is what it sounds like to me is not a very compelling title. The book mm. was amazing. And there was, there was just a whole bunch of books like that where I was like, the subtitle was so much better mm. than the title and made me want to read it. And there's a few books that I did read where the title was sort of subtitly. Like there was a book that I'm not quite done yet. That was called like, what is the mission of the church? And that's just it. It's literally just its thesis statement in a title. And I like that a lot, actually. It's like, yeah. it made me intrigued to read it. It's very, it's, straightforward slaps you in the face yeah i'm i'm quite interested in in like the process of titling a book because yeah, i know for the documentary we went for hours and hours and hours trying to figure out uh what we wanted to call it um i think for me best tagline logline uh for a book i think that's those are the, i don't know there's maybe a technical difference between those two um just do something by kevin DeYoung. the the subtitle is a liberating approach to finding god's will which is fine 
But then after that, it goes, or how to make a decision without dreams, visions, fleeces, impressions, open doors, random Bible verses, casting lots, liver shivers, writing in the sky, etc. And I think that's hilarious. And it's an excellent book, too. I think my favorite tagline from a book I read was, me, myself, and Bob, a true story about dreams, God, and talking vegetables. Such a good book. Like, I'm, this is a big recommend for me, actually. So, like, it's the second one I read this year, but also probably the best subtitle. Cool. Anyone else? Or is that, that's about that. Um, Just Thinking also says that there is a second, co- or the second book is available at stillthinkingbook.com. And I would highly recommend Jason Babin's book. It's really good. I have read it and it was great. If I had read it this year, I would talk about it. Nice. Yeah, I think that's probably that's probably good for for most of those. Do you guys just want to get at it? Dive into our first books. Cool. Yeah. I, I want to know one. Yeah, yeah. Actually, should we do stats and stuff first? That's probably better to do off the top. Yeah. I, I would love to know, especially what so fiction, non-fiction, audio versus physical, and then if you guys did do a breakdown of like, you know, theology, Christian living, humanities, history, self-help. Like, I just love to know what that breakdown is for you guys. Once again, Jamichael takes it with um, with the stats and being the full nerd. And this year, I, I think it was this year, the first time, Jamichael built all of us a huge spreadsheet with all the data forms. Did all of you guys use it? No. Mine's really similar. I'm sorry. That's fine. You mine's really you similar. It's just a little bit more general. There's mm-hmm. sort of a threshold of like, if I get much more specific than this, I'll start procrastinating doing mm-hmm. this, which means it won't happen. You have to kind of find your sweet spot with things, you know? I love the dopamine hit because I feel like every single cell that I filled in with more information, I was like, yeah, I did read that book. (laughs) (laughs) I did use uh, John Michael's spreadsheet and it was quite helpful. I will be honest, I did remove some columns. I was like, I don't need to differentiate between my audio page count versus my physical page count. I'm just going to have a page count column. So things like that. I, I did a few things. So I just streamlined it. Uh, and one of the things I did, unfortunately, was I did take out the sort of the genre column. I just I made a very simple fiction, nonfiction, page count, title and author. And I kept the, col- the comments column. So I've got some comments in there. Yeah, for me, I just, I only have it broken down into fiction and stories, biography and memoir, Assorted nonfiction and then Christian nonfiction. Cool. Um, so, so, do you, should I? Yeah, yeah. That's for that. Okay. So, it. yeah. So, we had about 40% Christian nonfiction. So, I'm just going to stop you right there and be dork. Um, do we, can we all just quickly introduce? <coughs> yeah, for sure. I'm Jesse. By, by audio, because I feel like probably everyone knows, but maybe if someone's jumping in for the first time. Sure thing. I'm Jesse Bout. I am Owen Hebert. I should be self explanatory. And I'm John Michael Bout. Hot dog. All right, Jess, you want to do a little stats? Very hot dog. (laughs) And there it is. There it is. So it begins. Okay. Oh, that's not out of my system. (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) Okay, we got Christian, 40% Christian nonfiction, 20% uh, assorted nonfiction, 20% biography and memoir, and then 20% fiction and stories. Anything surprise you about that? About that breakdown? I was surprised because I really felt like I was trending in a fiction direction. I was like, last year I was hyped about how much fiction I was reading, and I felt like it was really good for me. And it wasn't an intentional choice to stray away from that. There was just, I kept having books 
that either I needed to read them for a certain course I was taking or I needed to read them because it just like was so interesting and compelling or, or felt like something I wanted to learn about ASAP and it would get bumped up the reading list. Mm. Whereas all the fiction, as much as I have a huge list of fiction that I want to read it, it just, it didn't have the urgency this year that other things did. And so it fell by the wayside a little bit. Yeah. I, I had that so much too. There's like, I'm like, ah, you know what? I'm going to dive into some of, some of the fiction books that have meant a lot to me. Like I just kind of a couple, I want to reread Aragon. Um, or the inheritance cycle because I think he's releasing a new book in a few months. I really, uh, I'll get into this. I, I want to read um, some of the Percy Jackson series again because I, I read a bit, bit of mythology this year, and I was like, ah, that didn't. You know, it's just I'm I'm bummed actually that I didn't didn't read nearly enough fiction this year. But I think it was kind of I just got pressured out of it. I suppose. Um, Jess, any other any other stats you kind of you want to ring off, or is that about most of them? Um. I didn't get an actual hard stat on how many audiobooks versus physical, but a big trend this year was that I read like probably about two thirds physical copies, which was different for me. I think the reason is that a lot of my professional work was audio based this year and then also was very heavily working on my album. And so, so much of my time that when I went for a walk, even though I often wanted to listen to an audiobook, I had to tell myself that, no, you need to give your ears a break for 15 minutes Mm. and just, just go for a walk. And then a lot of the books that I had to read, I, I, I just, like I said, I really trended in a nonfiction direction this year, and I do prefer to read nonfiction because then mm. I can go at my own speed, slow down for certain parts, or go really, really fast at other parts. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, way less audiobooks than usual. I find it interesting to, um, I, I'm, I think this is probably fair for all of us to say, I don't think there'd be any way we would read as many books as we did if it wasn't for kind of the combined cookpot of this podcast. I, maybe that's not true for you guys. Maybe you're just like, nope, I had no thought of this. But I feel like I just kept having the podcast in the back of my mind. I'm like, ooh, I want to read another book so I can talk about it there. And I'm just sort of, I, I think we've all been reading more. I mean, Owen, you said, how many books did you read this first half of the year? I would I would agree with you. I would say that this has definitely increased my reading. Although I don't necessarily think about it consciously. I just get kind of excited about it. I see a book and mm. I'm like, oh, that would be a fun one to talk about. Yeah, on yeah, podcast. yeah. Um, uh, yeah, so I, I would say I've read definitely, definitely more. It's hard to say how much of that is driven by this and how much of that is driven by a general sort of renaissance in my reading habits to begin with. I feel like because of being in seminary and then having work reading, I actually had very little reading beyond that that I could do. So I felt like I was trying to push myself because I, I knew it'd be fun to talk about it on the podcast and with you guys. But actually at the same time, just due to being in seminary for me, I... Uh, most of this reading I would have, you know, had to do whether I was wanting to push myself or not. So I feel like that's a little bit different for me. And that's probably why I have so much like theology in my like b- book breakdown. Uh, Cause it was 41% uh, just straight up theology. And then Christian living is 22%. So that it's just already there. It's like almost two thirds is just like Jesus things, Jesus things, which is great. Uh, the rest of the breakdown real quick is humanities, uh, slash social science, 7%, history, 5%, self-help kind of book, 5%, biography, uh, 9% and classics, uh, 2%. So I would like to bump up the, like the fantasy, science fiction, classics, all of that stuff up a bunch. Uh, because my fiction versus nonfiction, like I said before, is 92% uh, to 
8%. And then audio to physical is, uh, I read more physical as well this year, actually. 64%, uh, 63% physical versus 73% audio. That's a real quick overview for me. I feel you on wanting to read more science fiction. I've actually almost read zero except for the, mm. that one thing that C.S. Lewis did. Um, I've recently, as of like the last 48 hours, become obsessed with this song called The Moon's a Harsh Mistress. I'm going to show it to you guys afterwards. It's just such a good song. And then when I Googled it, I found out that it's just stealing the title from an old science fiction book about humans colonizing the moon and it's not about that it's just he like liked the title and was like i'm gonna write a song about this um and so i just want to read that book now cool it was written in like the 70s or something yeah i um you know i was, I was listening to our old podcast i was i i this is i don't know if you guys do this i unashamedly go back and listen to these old book podcasts semi-frequently. I've probably made my way through all of them like three times just because it just feels like it just feels, it just feels fun. And so it's interesting kind of, um, you know, looking at, at, at our trends, just kind of paying attention to how we've all been shifting over the last two and a half years, three years on, on what we've been reading. And in the very first podcast, you mentioned Terry Pratchett as doing like, whimsical fantasy like it, we were talking about it for like hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy as being kind of like whimsical nonsense comedy sci-fi and terry pratchett being the same thing for fantasy and i have not read any terry pratchett but i just like ah, i really want to i'm glad i went back and listened because i was like oh yeah i did want to listen to that or read that so i'm gonna i'm gonna do that at some point i hope I said you. I'm looking at Owen because he was the one who, who recorded that. Yeah, I, I continue to record it, and my wife has almost a complete collection of Terry Pratchett's writing, so you can come by and steal one of one of those books anytime you like. Um, I finally got figured out how to get my stats going. I actually, I thought I was around 50-50 on fiction, nonfiction, but I am significantly more fiction than nonfiction. This is this is maybe problematic. I <laughs> Dude, I'm here for it. Since we did it last time, I've only read 15 nonfiction and 27 fiction. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I am heavily, heavily on the fiction. Uh, way more audiobook than physical. Um, and a few that are where I did both, where I would, be reading a physical or ebook while listening to audio yeah so like listening to at the same time while having the physical book open and like just doing it faster together and tracking it yeah okay i did that for i think three maybe four books this year as well like did the rest of you guys do that i've never done it and i i imagine that it's just like an amazing way to learn you could also probably like really up the audiobook speed then but uh yeah i've never done it yet i really have no interest in doing it um, maybe that's closed-minded. I should probably try once, but <laughs> I just, I don't know. That sounds like, hard pass <laughs> from <laughs> Jacob. I don't, I, that just, for some reason that feels wildly But you're also a very fast reader, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. If I really want to demo a book, I know the fastest way is for me to just throw my phone in my bedroom, sit down and just read and I can get pretty quickly. Is that most of your stats, Owen? Kind of all the, all the relevant, relevant deets? Yeah. Also, we did average page counts. Did we all do that? Yeah. That was funny because they were all within like 10 or 15 pages of each other. Like, weren't they all pretty much 280? Yeah, basically 285 or 286 for me. I'm the pleb who's at 273. Uh, you know, seven yeah, pages Yeah, but you below. did beat us in book numbers. We, did we say book numbers? I, I read uh, 32 this year. 
how many books did you guys start and not finish? Because I wrote those down, like any ones that I started and I got like, you know, maybe 200 pages in. I was like, I'm, I'm putting this down. Uh, and, and I had a few books where it was like, it was a commentary. I read like significant amount of pages. So I wanted to like record that, mm. but didn't feel like finishing it because it wasn't either interesting enough or it was like, there's 600 more pages. I don't feel like waiting through all of that. I think one or two. One book that I did that for was <coughs> The God Ask, but not because it wasn't good, but just because mm. um, I just I decided that I wanted to read it again later. Mm. And so I, it, it was just like put off for later. Yeah, I read 38 books this first half of the year um, and then three books that I did not finish. And it'd be fun to talk about why. Um, I also hope people kind of get the spirit in which we're talking about all these stats and book counts and stuff. I don't feel, I never really feel competition-y, except in more like a comic sense. Like, it's funny to be like, who read the most? Who, you know what I mean? Who got the highest page count? Michael and I have been kind of vibing back and forth on who got more pages over the last, like, six months. And, I, but it doesn't come from, it just comes from a place of just, I think, maybe it's even a little bit of a guy thing. Just like in the stats, like in the numbers, like in, like in... It's kind of like those kind of finer gritty details are just yeah, fun because we don't follow sports. Yeah, basically, yeah. We, there's a stats gap in our life that we had to fill, and we decided to do with this. That actually makes a lot of sense, Jesse. That's that <laughs> is what's going so on. It's like yeah, he had a really good fourth quarter in the, in April with knocking out nine books there, but it was, it was a little bit of slip down in May. But you know, but like also what we said in the very first book podcast we yeah. did, like we would there's there's not that sense that there'd be if you only read 15 books in a year like all the respect in the world to you, you know, we all have different lives and different schedules. And Absolutely. so, you know, if you, if you only read five books, Hey, you read five books. Right. And so there's none of that superiority going on for sure. I mean, it, find me a few years ago and I was, I was reading like five books in a year. Yeah. Right. It's kind of an interesting balance because it's like, we're all like so passionate about reading and it's, it's been just the, the process of reading of learning has been such a huge enriching part of all of our lives. And then the book podcast, I think, <clears throat> encourages all of us and kind of drives all of us to read more. And so it's like, there's kind of part of me that's like, yeah, reading more is great. But then also tempered with the just total realization that everyone has these different places in life and different, you know, responsibilities and stuff. And at least for sure, Jamichael and I, we go to a seminary and have to read for work. And so that kind of just gives us this, our, our numbers are just inflated just because of the stuff we have to do for our day-to-day job, right? Uh, I read 47 books this year and started and didn't finish seven more. Um, so actually, I don't know if I have done this every year and I just didn't you know, pay attention to it, but I felt like I, I got into several books and like three of those are commentaries and they're like 500-page commentaries. I read 200 pages of it felt like I wanted to record it because I'm curious what my page count was going to be. Uh, but I was like, I'm not going to read the, the the 300 pages left. And then another one's like John Frame Systematic Theology, where it's a thousand over a 1,000 pages, and I read 450 pages of it. So I didn't finish the book, so it's not on my list, but I got partway through it. And then I read one book, uh, The Case Against Contraception, uh, by Brian C. Hodge. And I like wanted to love this book. I like walked in it believing that I was going to like crush it and this was going to be my go-to resource. And the longer I read it, the more I was like, I, this is disgusting. Like the writing is terrible. You're, I feel like you're twisting facts that I've read in other books 
to bring <clears throat> to to try to like say that there is no ethical case for Christians to ever use some mode of contraceptive uh, in marriage. So I I got 175 pages in. I'm like I'm done. I can't. I don't. It's not worth reading the 150 pages that are left because this sucks. And I haven't had that in a long time actually. Where I it was like that. Just like this is not worth my time. Okay. Now I'm curious. Seven, seven sort of full starts that didn't go anywhere is quite a few, mm. right? Because I, I mean, for me, that would be quite a few. Because I, I generally, even if I like, I'm going through the book. I'm like, oh, I hate this. I'm still gonna finish it. Um. So at least then I can hate it and be like, no, but I've read the whole thing. <laughs> like if someone mentions it, I'm like, no, I hate that book, and I did read it. You know. Um. But for me, I so I read 43 books this six month period, and um, I only had one bad start. Mm that I dropped. And that one was because uh, I was listening to it in audiobook form and I realized that I shouldn't be, that this was something you got to read physical. Okay. And that sometimes happens. Do you guys ever have that where you're, oh, yeah. Where yeah. you're going in an audiobook and you're like, no, no, no. Like this is one where I need to chew over the paragraphs more. I need to, uh, I think this one, like the physical copy actually has like tables and graphs and stuff too. That oh, I'm like, yeah. Okay, this is, I am, this is an impoverished experience here. <laughs> I need to get the physical right. book. Um, it was generations. Uh, the book, the guys who coined the term millennial and stuff, who really sort of mapped out the generations that we all use in common parlance now. Um, I wanted to read their their original book where they really kind of like start, started throwing some of these ideas around. And I was mm. just like, this is not a good audiobook. I feel like typically the kind of book I would pick up on my own is going to be the book that I'm like, I chose this. I'm going to finish this, even if I didn't like love it. But every single one of these that I didn't finish was because it was like assigned with the exception of the case against contraception book uh it was like assigned i needed to read part of it so i read a, a very substantial amount and was like you know i could read this and finish it on my own but like historical theology by alistair mcgrath was good i don't need to finish the whole thing uh because i'd rather put my energies into books that i'm like loving that are like gonna be changing my life or that are highly recommended by you boys and maybe that was a new experience for me this year is I felt more of a pressure cooker on what I had to read and why, yeah. because, um, because with into the light ministries, we're kind of, we're zeroed in on creating parenting resources and we need to read furiously as much as we can on that topic. And so I didn't feel the luxury to kind of be like, ah, I could finish this book, I guess it was like, nah, chuck it in the bin. I've got a parenting book I need to read and get under my belt faster. So um, I think I felt more more pressure to be to strategize. I think, especially in the second half of the first half of this year, than I have really any time else. I think um, my stats just just briefly thirty eight books the first half. Um, let's see, uh, theology seventeen percent or seventeen. I don't have percents. I don't feel like making that up right now. But of the thirty eight. 17 of them were theology, five were Christian living, five were history, five were biography, autobiography. Really? Huh. Three were self-help. And uh, there's probably more categories there, but... And then there's a few classics and some fiction thrown in. I don't know. I don't have my... Uh, my I don't have my pie charts set up to, to quite as much. Um, yeah, I'm my total page count, which maybe is kind of the, the final stat we should all kind of ring up and then dive into it, I think, is... Um, my, I've read 11,639 pages. Jamike, I think you have that stomped. Uh, 14,304 pages. 
Yeah, just under 9,000. Uh, just under 12,000. Ooh, Owen. Hey. Guys, I'm, I'm so excited. I just Even as you're talking about like the, the book that you kind of got partway through and the one you got partway through, I'm just like getting hyped now to dive into our first books because I feel like there's, like every year, there's going to be this wild disparity between like all these different books in different directions. And that's maybe probably one of the things that I love the most about this is like we don't know what we've read each other this year, really. And so like whatever the book Jesse is about to go with, number one, is like, Complete left field, no clue where this is going. And every single few minutes of this podcast is just comedy. Yeah, and something we mentioned before we started recording was that we wanted to give a shout out for what's taking the place of our favorite title so far. And so when a slightly more funny or interesting title pops up, to, to give it a shout out and say, oh, that's our new current favorite one of this year. So and I love the idea of, um, of shooting an email to the author of whoever has that book and say <laughs> that... In the current, in the twenty first half of twenty twenty three, Mr. Chesterton, you won. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, Jess, do you want to do you want to start with the uh, first uh, book? The person who has the most should start so that sure. they get one out to, yeah. to go. So why don't we go with Jermichael and we'll go clockwise? I actually find it funny when I was listening to the very first podcast. Um, we were uh, at least me. I was I was very dumb. I was so obsessed with us making sure we were on the same book. And I love in later podcasts we just throw out the idea of staying like in sync of whose book because we we're always talking like we're always jumping in on each other's books to talk about ones we've read, but later on the list and stuff like that. And it gets a big old mess as we go on. I I, I like that. So one of the things I was committed to last year was reading more biographies this year. So the very first book I read was a biography of Genghis Khan. Uh, <laughs> what was it called? Genghis Khan and the Making of the Modern World by Jack Weatherford. You guys should totally read this book. It's okay. uh, it's a it's a good audiobook. Uh, like I wouldn't recommend it like to the highest extent of biographies because like oh it's going to change your life. It's so inspirational. I just knew nothing about the Mongols. Like, just crazy how much land they conquered and how Genghis Khan, like, reinvented warfare. He, like, basically would, he'd, like, be like, you guys have to surrender to us or, you know, we're going to come pillage and destroy your city. People would, like, band together and then he would go pillage and destroy their cities and, like, did that everywhere. But all off of, like, living in tents off of horseback, like very much not the medieval like knights in armor kind of style of fighting. And like it, different times where they went almost to Rome and the Pope was like pleading with them to not come. And then they eventually turned back. Even like their religious policy, they were like any religion is cool. They, they wanted Christians to come in. Well, how very tolerant of them. I love that. Yeah, I, you know, it's like, it's interesting, like Jack Weatherford, I don't know where he's coming from. I feel like he was really into the like, oh, see, they were like the most tolerant ancient society that we have history of. And it's like, yeah, but they Unless were also like raping and pillaging yeah. everyone. Like, so anyways, good um, book. Was, okay, well, so here's a here's a question. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm a... <laughs> <laughs> and We're totally fine with you being Christian. You're also dead, so whatever. Um, question. <laughs> I, I assume there was quite a few atrocities in the book. I, I've often kind of noted that like there's a big difference in the way that we talk about Genghis Khan versus, let's say, someone about Hitler, where I think uh, up till sort of very recently, I think it was rare to hear jokes about Hitler unless it was from a very sort of offensive mm. um, 
television show or something. And now it's now it's sort of becoming a little bit more. But like something has to fade from recent memory where it's like there aren't many people alive who remember this. Right. Um, I, I'm not even saying what the ethics should be. I don't I, I don't know what the ethics should be. Maybe we should never joke about something terrible. But all that to say, assuming there was some atrocities, since it was very like separate in time, like from how far ago this was, do you feel like you were emotionally impacted by it or did it feel like you were very separated from, from the terrible things that the Mongols presumably did? It felt more like a fantasy book, like not because he didn't write it well, like, or that it was like first person or anything. It really didn't feel like a piece of history that actually happened and was like atrocities. So I was just like, oh, cool, like interesting. Like hearing all yeah. this, like what happened but it didn't feel like, oh, this was a genocide that kept happening. Yeah, what, what's the thing they say where it's like if if one person dies, it's a tragedy, and if 10,000 people die, it's a statistic or something like that? Yeah. So I think when you can't put any names or faces to anything, it's just it's hard to to really be emotionally impacted. Maybe that's, maybe that's a really bad thing. But I was just curious how, yeah. how you're reading it more in depth because I've never felt many feelings towards positive or negative towards... Uh, Genghis Khan what like one of the things that made this book cool for me was that there was like a book uh, That was the history of the Mongols, but it was not able to be translated because people didn't know the language mm. So for years and years they knew they were sitting on the history book of the Mongols like it was like their text and Eventually someone cracked it and then suddenly all sorts of history that was lost uh, because the Mongols didn't generally write uh, was like brought into uh, into history. And what was cool too is like the guy Jack Weatherford, he like lived in the area, hanging out with the locals, trying to like go to the places that Genghis Khan actually traveled to, mm. talking to people, trying to understand the history. So I think he did a fair job of it. I don't know like what other books he's written, but I thought that was cool too. I, um, this is, I don't know, this is an interesting point or maybe it's not interesting, but it's a cool personal point. I got the chance to see the Rosetta Stone in person uh, in London. And I was not prepared for how like impactful that would be for me, weirdly. Because like the Rosetta Stone has, oh gosh, it has, you know, Egyptian hieroglyphics, Greek, and I think Aramaic. I'm not sure. It's got three, it's the same piece of text in three different languages. And just the idea like, Maybe it's just because of the cool opportunities I've gotten through seminary to learn Greek, to like wrestle with ancient languages. The idea that there would be like an archaeologist just kind of musing over this for a second. And then all of a sudden that light bulb moment of, oh my goodness, hold up, hold up. This is, this is, these are Egyptian hieroglyphics. This is Greek. We know this. They're the same. And just that moment of, we can crack this. We got this. Because they had tons. We had so many examples of Egyptian hieroglyphics before the Rosetta Stone. Like, with tons of them. But no one could figure it out until the Rosetta Stone came. And, and that was the start of, of that. Um, 90% sure that that history is correct. But it was just really cool seeing this gigantic black rock in the museum. Being like, this was the moment that we really got to figure out, like, ancient Egyptian systems. Yeah, I find translation to be a really noble pursuit. Yeah. <clears throat> Like from from both like a Bible translation standpoint, and then even just from like a a humanitarian standpoint, it's a it's a noble thing to attempt to translate. I would never have thought that would interest me, but getting uh, into Greek a little bit and actually spending time translating, especially the Bible, but uh, I was like, this actually would be such a cool job. Like, and I don't think of myself as a language nerd, not at all. Uh, 
and it would totally be a career that I'd be like, I could get passionate about this. I could, you know, dive into this and yeah, serve the church through doing this like for the rest of my life. I don't think that's what I'm going to do, but I could totally see that as an awesome career. Okay, great. Uh, my first book of the year was Memories of an Immigrant Kid by Klaus Stell. Um, so Klaus Stell, for anyone who doesn't know, is my grandfather, and he wrote this short book of his recollections from his childhood, just like a, sort of a, a bunch of like episodical memories. And it's it's great. It's like obviously I'm biased because he's my grandfather, but just hearing about some of the stories of sort of a regular person moving from from Holland to Canada and just some of the zany stories of their family sort of, you know, they weren't living in abject poverty, but, but tough times and sort of the way they overcame that and just some of the silly shenanigans that he got into as a kid. It's just awesome. You often read biographies about people who did crazy, famous, important things. And to just read a biography of sort of a regular person is, is great. I, I, it's, it's, it's only about an hour and a bit. Um, I, I actually recorded the audiobook with him. And so the reason I was listening to this is I sort of edited it as a Christmas present for uh, the Stell family and then listened to it, I think, like either on New Year's Day or, or sometime in December that would have been post the other book podcast, which is why I'm counting it as 2023. Um, yeah, uh, you can you can find it under Bod Time Stories on Spotify. Totally listen to this. It's great. Yeah, I listened to it too. First book on my list as well. It's so good. I love the fact that you got um, your Opa in to record it. Like that's yeah. He has he has a great audiobook voice, yeah, and it's yeah. just great hearing the author read it. I I think that was why I wanted to record it as an audiobook after he wrote it. Is I thought I would love to hear my great great something grandfather read a book he wrote. Like so, just I hope that this will be something that future generations get something out of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I really enjoyed it a lot. Okay, my first book is The Girl on the Boat. Uh, it's by P.G. Woodhouse. There you go. I, I, I often start my years with P.G. Woodhouse. There's something about it. You know, you get, come out of the Christmas season, you're getting into your, your late December, early January, and just feeling like something fun and lightweight. And I read P.G. Woodhouse. Um, now, how many people here have read P.G. Woodhouse at this point? Because I remember I introduced it a couple years ago. I told everyone, make sure you be reading this, children. Um, I know Jesse got on that train. Well, you know who else did is I was just upstairs grabbing a glass of water, and Mrs. Tig, who is graciously hosting the house that we're recording this in, said that she's been listening to it because of the book podcast and Woo! finds it hilarious. So it's at least one person. Okay, well, I started my year with P.G. Woodhouse. I don't really need to go into it too much. The plots are never important with P.G. Woodhouse. What's important... <laughs> What's important is the way he tells his stories, because his use of English is very, very amusing. This is not a Jeeves and Wooster story. So this is one of the non-Jeeves stories for those people who would want to break out of the, the regular Jeeves structure. Jem, did you read, have you read P.G. Woodhouse? Okay, so we can be in shame together. I'm weeping inside. Yeah. Is there like one that people should start with? What's the best intro to Woodhouse? Um, probably Stephen Fry's readings of P.G. Woodhouse. Ooh. Yeah. Some, some, and the thing is he did, he did a Jeeves and Wooster sets that you can get on Audible. Uh, okay. but he also did a Blandings set, which is the, another sort of world within the P.G. Woodhouse, uh, canon. Um, and I actually sometimes like Blandings even more. Uh, and so he did a couple, he did a lot of P.G. Woodhouse stories. 
And they're on Audible? Yeah. Okay, I will from, not... From Stephen Fry. I will not end the day without buying that. Yeah, and you can do, like, for a single title on Audible, you can get... Because he did them in, like, packs, so you can get a bunch of titles in one. Oh, hot dog. Get, yeah. I could swear there was one that was free. I could be wrong about that. Anyway. There's definitely a bunch of Woodhouse that is free. Awesome. It's all I, public domain now. Yeah, I love that. <clears throat> um, My second book of the year, because we talked about Memories of an Immigrant Kid, The Code Breaker by Walter Isaacson. Oh, so good. Had this on my list, didn't read it. Okay. So I, I think I've said this before. For me, the one of the marks of like a really high recommend is if it a book can pull its weight in multiple dimensions. So if it's giving me like thoughtful commentary on the world and it's an engaging story and I feel like my heart is like moved to a direction, if it does a lot of different things at once. Um, the Codebreaker is so Walter Isaacson, fantastic biographer. Uh, it's the story of Jennifer Doudna, Doud, either Doudna or Doudna, I forget how to pronounce it. And she um, was the she was a woman. She won a Nobel Peace Prize or Nobel uh, Prize in biology, I think. Either way, a Nobel Prize for her work on developing the mRNA technology for gene editing, essentially. So. The whole, I, and I, I am nowhere close to the person who should explain how this works, but when it comes to gene editing um, and, and CRISPR technologies, there's like five or six key pieces of technology that all need to come together in order to do, to be able to edit the human genome. And it starts with um, Watson and Crisp, Crip, Crick, gosh, man, it's been, it's been a while since I read it. I think Watson and Crick, uh, who uh, first sequenced the human genome. And then once that was done, you know, like you have all these technologies that that kind of um, that kind of cascade from that. And as with is typical with um, Isaacson is whenever he does a biography, it's just as much a story of the person, and it's just as much a story of like whatever industry or or historical line that they're in, right? So this book is about um, Jennifer, but it's also about just the science of of genetics and gene editing and technology and it goes into covid and how the mrna technology impacted the vaccine which is not controversial in the slightest and it's like it's just a fascinating walkthrough of some of the ethical issues that we're going to grapple with when it comes to the ability to edit the human genome and different types of genetic uh editing and and all in all it just kind of gave me some good handholds on this issue and, and kind of a good, a good horizon for what I should be thinking about when we're kind of increasingly having these conversations about genetic engineering, basically. And it was just really, it was just really cool. It was a great book and I, I highly recommend it not only because it's a cool story, but also because it's, I think this is a, a, a horizon that we should be paying attention to because it's only going to get cheaper and easier to edit the, our genetic code in different capacities. So Cool. Uh, my next booked book is Me, Myself, and Bob, A True Story About Dreams, God, and Talking Vegetables by Phil Vischer. How many of you guys have read this? I know you have, Jake. Read it and loved it. it read it, yeah, read it, and, and it was hugely influential, actually, a few years ago. What's really... Oh, and you should read it. It's... Owen uh, would love this book. Oh. You, would, you would absolutely love this book. As someone who, like, does creative projects... And but also business stuff. Uh, it's just a really interesting biography of hearing about how 
uh, VeggieTales came about in the first place. Autobiography. Autobiography. So Phil Vischer uh, wrote it himself. Uh, Just really good. And then even the fact that he's not trying to teach big lessons necessarily, but at the end he kind of reflects back saying, okay, almost like the rise and fall of of VeggieTales and it kind of getting out of control for him. At the end, taking some time to be like, okay, what, what could I, should I have done better? And I read it right as Jake and I were thinking about Into the Light, setting that up as a nonprofit, trying to think about like, am like, am I a creative person? Things like that. It just really hit me at the right time mm. and made me like a big point he was emphasizing in the book was take time to depend on the Lord and like ask him to give you the vision that he wants you to have. Not just like, oh, this is the next, like running through the next open door that seems to be in front of you. When in fact, maybe there were two off to the left and to the right that also you could have been going through. And when there are potentially good decisions that could happen, just doing them like snap, snap, snap really quickly, uh, often doesn't leave the space for the Lord to be directing your paths. So I thought, I love that. I just want to add a note too. I know some people and maybe some parents aren't a huge fan of VeggieTales and I understand the concerns about maybe it like making the Bible silly or not serious. I would say even if you're not a fan, this is a really good read. Some of the people who recommended this to me were actually didn't like VeggieTales. Um, I'm thinking of two people in particular who were parents who didn't really put VeggieTales and they were like, oh, you got to read this book. It's required reading. Like Sue sent it to me. So I, I would just say, yeah, it's, it's just a, it's a fun read. It's a, uh, you'll, you'll learn a lot. It's, it's good. And I didn't grow up with, neither of us grew up with VeggieTales. I, I feel like I kind of did, not oh, really, really in the house, just sort of around. Like I, I know Other people's houses. I could probably <laughs> sing like a third of, <laughs> I could probably sing like a third of the silly songs. Like my okay. our parents weren't against it. They just weren't like, I think big, I've only they watched like, like big proponents ever. Of it. You know what I mean? This is the kind of rebellion I hope for my kids is like, oh, you're sneaking around watching VeggieTales, hey? <laughs> <laughs> I suppose we'll have to talk okay. about that. <laughs> I love the idea of a parent being like, like the threshold for rebellion is so low that you're as a parent being like, this is still the best case scenario. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, so I also, I, I would really encourage, you know, if, if you're listening to this and you're a creative person of any kind, like you love the, the process of art, of creating, of anything like that, like when VeggieTales, when Phil Vischer started the early um, 3D modeling and stuff of VeggieTales, he was working with absolute cutting edge technology. Like he was really in a lot of ways leading the field, mm-hmm. not not by size because of how like big they were, but he was pulling stuff off that, that massive studio animators weren't doing at the time. And he was just really passionate about excellence and creativity in storytelling and, and, and product. And it was just so important to him to create something that was of quality in the Christian space. And so he kind of navigated that, the world of being a Christian and an artist as thoughtfully as he could and was just committed to excellence. And I, I it seems ridiculous now because we look back like, okay, like these are dumb cartoons or dumb 3D animated cartoons of a veggie tale. But when he was making them, these were the best animations you could make. And I, I just think that's really cool. And and it's then it's interesting to follow the story of VeggieTales as it spiraled a little bit from there. So yeah, I, it was a great, it's a great biography. Yep. It's awesome. Okay. Uh, my second book of the year was uh, The Turquoise Table by Kristen Schell. Um, so this is kind of a, an odd 
choice of reading. I was just at someone's house, um, sort of in that time between Christmas and Boxing Day, where you're just sort of feeling lazy. And I just saw that there was a book about hospitality, and I, I am interested in hospitality, and so I picked it up. And it's basically kind of this this woman's story of how she sort of struggled to connect with her neighborhood. And then she had this table that she felt like like kind of a picnic table that she felt like was kind of drab, and so she painted it turquoise and put it outside and just put up a sign somewhere that said, like, I'm going to be having coffee here from, like, this time to this time. Huh. And people started coming. It was sort of slow going at first, but she really developed, like, a community and was able to really like be a good witness and good neighbor to her neighbors through that. I can't say I highly recommend this book just because it felt like it was written for a highly specific demographic of like middle-class moms, basically of like, it was very much written with, with a suburb in mind, but I would say the overall concept was really cool. Like it really made me think deeply about like, what are spaces where I'm predictable and it made me think of like a, a housemate I had once who kind of, he always was in his room and he sort of told us like, if my door's shut, that means I need to get work done. If it's open, I'm here to chat kind of thing. And he was extremely predictable and it was, it was actually really comforting to know that there was someone like, that was really good hospitality, I think, um, even though we lived in the same house. So it, it just made me think about like, where are spaces where I'm like uh, free to, to be community to people? And I don't think it's going to be a turquoise table in my front yard because currently I don't own a home, but... But yeah, that, that was that was an interesting idea. So I don't know if I recommend the book necessarily for most people, but think about the concept. That sounds actually kind of cool. Uh, my second book is... So this was... I have combined two here. So because there's a Great Courses Plus on Audible mm. uh, for how to publish your book. <laughs> and it's written by someone named Jane Friedman. And she also wrote a book, The Business of Being a Writer. And I had listened to The Great Courses Plus like years ago uh, and then re-listened to it again this January uh, and also listened to her audiobook, The Business of Being a Writer. And they're basically the same thing. So that was a waste. But <laughs> uh, I, I would say go with The Great Courses Plus if you had to go with one of them. Uh, Jane Friedman has worked like as an editor and in the publishing space her entire career, I believe. Uh, and she's uh, she's someone who I've followed for for years. I really like her tone. She's very matter of fact, and she doesn't mind telling you that if you're having a hard time get published, maybe it's because your writing sucks. You know what I mean? Like she's she's very blunt. Some people find her a little bit harsh. Uh, that maybe she's a little bit too uh, still stuck with the traditional publishing model. Um, and some people are like, hey, you should be more flexible. And she's like, yeah, but the thing is, self publishing is great, but you don't have that that sort of the gatekeeping of the traditional publishing model mm-hmm. actually helps you to know whether or not you need to keep working on your craft before you're actually saleable, right? And there's something for that, right? Uh, I would say if you're going to do one of them, uh, I would do the Great Courses Plus because she reads it herself. And uh, I always like an author reading their own stuff. How does the title, for some reason, the title is not connecting with what the content of the book is, like Great Courses Plus? Sorry, so you're familiar with what the Great Courses... I'm not, but... Oh, okay, sorry. So she, so it's not called The Great Courses. It's called How to Publish Your Book. Oh, I see. And it's, which, sorry, which I missed that. Which is very much exactly... That's exactly yeah. what it is. I was like, why, why not something like that? The Great Courses Plus, I'm not sure what it is like as an institution, but they basically get experts within their field to like write a course um. on a thing. And it's, they basically just write a book on a thing, and then they read off the different chapters. So you can buy it on Audible? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And there's, there's a whole bunch of different Great Courses Plus on different things from experts within their field. 
Who's the uh, Who's the author that we all read, or a few of us read last year? Hangs out with Tim Ferriss. It's in the same zeitgeisty space. It's like digital minimalism. Ah, who's the guy? Oh, Cal Newport. That's it. So yeah. Cal, I listened to a great podcast. It's kind of related to that great podcast with Cal Newport, um, talking about writing and like how to get like you're writing anywhere. And his big thing was write write for editors. Like have an editor who actually has a vested interest in making sure that writing's good because they're going to publish it. Like cut your work apart because he's like you you need you need something that's a pushback against your writing. And not just a vague, yeah, I, I like this. You know what I mean? As a as a way to hone your writing and make it good. And that makes sense. It's also a little bit of a, of course, Mr. Newport writes from a privileged stance there a little bit, just insofar as he's got an editor who he can write for. Um, whereas for the layperson, first of all, you're never going to line up an editor before you publish a book. But for Cal Newport, because of his his platform and stuff, he he will have editors lined up for a project before he even starts writing the first chapter. Right. Uh, that's true. Counter though, he, he, sorry, I should have clarified. He was talking about writing, um, like articles for like blogs and stuff. Oh, okay. So even as a freelance writer, he was like, you can submit articles. Like and there's still, a, uh, there's still a, you know, a wall that you have to get through for mm-hmm. really to be taken yeah. seriously at some degree. But he's like, write for Pete, write for like, even if you're writing for a little blog or something, whoever's the editor of that, of that blog or little newspaper still has a interest in making sure that they're not putting out crap. Yeah. Custom yourself to the feedback. Yeah, exactly. I love the idea of producing content with the ability to be rejected for it to fail because I feel like, and and maybe this is like where my personality, you know, like I like the challenge aspect because I just believe that, you know, I'm going to work hard until it, you know, would be accepted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I love the idea that he t- he talked about in this podcast, where it's like if you don't write for rejection or create with the possibility of rejection happening, uh, it's really hard to move forward past your blind spots. Whereas, like these, when you're when you could be rejected, you analyze your stuff way more and can push to new like levels of quality, and you can have other people pointing out the major issues that you could be facing right and I, I i really feel that and there's so for me i've written some novels and stuff and i've never gone the self-publishing route with it of course i could hire editors and pay through the nose for people to come and tell me my book is needs to change this or that or the other and hope that they're actually credible right um but for me i've always just been like i, I can't do that i need to at least before i start self-publishing i need to get traditionally published so that at least someone will tell me where mm-hmm. to get off the bus and what needs to change and what works and what doesn't right it's definitely the temptation to self-publish is not really there so much because I, I need someone to reject me first. <laughs> yeah. And how would I ever know if it was actually something that an editor would have rejected, but now I've just gone ahead and, and published it myself. I feel like this is actually a really big problem in the creative domains of like finding out what is the best authority to tell you if your stuff is good and even what type of good or not good is worth hearing. Musicians deal with this all the time, right? There's certain critiques on music that you're like, yeah, that's a thing, but it doesn't really affect my choice to make that music. Or, okay, that critique's actually really worth listening to because it's this kind of thing. Or do you make music for the people? Do you make it for yourself? When our creative work with Into the Light, uh, one beauty of it is that how we feel about it is by far the least important thing. We want to create something that works for the purpose we're building. It's not a, our Into the Light work is not a creative expression of our own 
whatever nearly as much as it is we're creating teaching tools, um, you know, content stories that serve teaching methods. And so I want as much critique on that as possible. But for the music that I write, it's not the same. There's certain critiques that I'm like, yeah, well, I made it that way. So deal with it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I was talking about this with Jake the other day where I I saw this Rick Rubin podcast clip that was floating around um, where he was, sorry, he was saying that pure art is a offering to God and the only sort of faculties that God has really given you for at least, at least in a highly subjective art form like music, the only faculties that God's really given you to assess quality is like your own intuition because you know, it's so subjective. What is good. Right. And so he's like, when you're making an offering to God with art, you need to rely on that and you can't rely on, on, trying to figure out what other people are going to want or what the audience is going to like. And I don't think what he meant by that is that it's wrong to make a commercial product. I actually think making commercial products can be a very noble pursuit. So I'm not trying to pit like pure art versus other things, but I do think they're slightly different. And so I don't know if I would like put um, into the light into that same category. And then likewise, I would say if somebody wants to like, they're like, I want to make pop music or, or whatever, anything like I want to make music, that is going to like be liked by people. I think that could be a noble pursuit if it's not in a super people pleasing mindset. What I would say is that like probably most books should lean into a thing of like, they're very other focused. Yeah. And so maybe there could be someone out there where it's like, I want to write something really bizarre and strange. And this is in my, in my, my brain or my body, whatever you want to call it. And I need to get this story out of, but it's very unconventional and I don't think a publisher is going to like it. I'd say like, yeah, go ahead and self-publish it. Just don't necessarily expect it to take off. I'd say for like 90 something percent of books, I I'm in agreement with you guys where it's like, you should be other focused. Yeah. It, it does feel like if a creative pursuit is for the purpose of being consumed by others or, you know, to bless others or, you know, fill it in to teach others. Uh, and it's not just because you enjoy doing it and like do it to the glory of God. I do feel like it's like, then you should be willing and open to get criticism because there is going to be a way that it could be better. You know what I mean? Agreed. Totally. Um, Next book of mine, Bad Blood by John Carreyrou. This book was great. Um, You've read it, John Mike? No. No. The podcast a bunch. Interesting. Uh, Have either of you guys read it? I read it. Okay. Yeah, I liked it. It was great. Good. Bad Blood is a story of, oh gosh, what's her name? Elizabeth Holmes. That's it. Who started a massive tech, uh, multi, uh, it became a multi-billion dollar tech company that was founded um, on an idea of blood testing and making blood testing more acceptable or um, accessible and cheaper and stuff like that. And the ultimate at the end of the day, the technology was just never there. And it was built on promises and little lies and then bigger lies. And ultimately, the entire multi-billion dollar company headed by Elizabeth Holmes was nothing of substance. It is such a fascinating book to read. I would so recommend pairing this book with um, Walter Isaacson's biography of Steve Jobs. Because... Her and Steve had this charisma about them, this ability to to inspire people behind a vision, to to really get behind this idea of doing good for the world. 
And Steve Jobs also had this fanatical desire to make quality products. And Holmes didn't. And they both built massive companies, but one of them was a shell. And it's just so interesting. There's so many interesting themes of lying, of inspiration, of gravitas, of of wanting to be behind a vision, of building products that work about like what where does the line between like hype and promise become deceit and yeah lots of great ethical questions in there there's it's so interesting also especially because she idolized steve jobs so everything she wanted to be was was like him and so many people believed she was yeah it did feel like a weird messed up sequel to yeah yeah so it's like steve jobs i do not think was generally an admirable person i don't think of him Mm -hmm. as a hero um that's but, that's important but, to say. But yeah. whether you like him or not, or think he's admirable, he did accomplish some pretty incredible things. And so this feels like the cautionary tale of like, hey, that was already a cautionary tale of like, <laughs> hey, is all this success worth being a bad person who isn't a good father or husband? Um, so that's already the first kind of moral thing. And then this is like, hey, if you idolize someone like this and you don't actually have the chops or the product to, to carry you through, or the talent, it's going to be even worse. Not Because not only will you mess up all your prof- personal relationships, you'll mess up all your professional relationships. So she had all the charisma and, and the thing he called like the reality distortion field, where he basically wouldn't take no for an answer, and his engineers would figure it out. She kind of took that and was like, but, but the thing is, he was making iPhones, and she was making medical technology. And so to just not take no for an answer from your engineers who are saying this isn't possible, yeah, way sketchier. Also, what's so fascinating to me is there's a version of this person that just never gets anywhere in life. Like they're just stubborn, obstinate, they don't have a product, all the things. And you're like, there's no big, huge issue here. But she had this bizarre charisma about her that allowed her to move mountains and raise billions in capital like she inspired people raise some mountains and not others well yeah mountains of of air i suppose mountains of 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 funding from yeah yeah so it's just crazy that like she accomplished so much in a weird sense with having no substance behind it so it's like it's just it's a very bizarre tale of of because those people exist there are people of such extraordinary charisma that they can get a lot done without substance potentially and those people look very similar to the people who get a lot done with substance. And it takes so many devilish details to find out whether what someone's building is actually legit. It sounds like such a good book. Who was the author again? John Kerry Rue. The, now, the reason why this book is even better is because he was the journalist who, to say took her down, maybe it'd be a little hyperbolic. But he was the journalist, was it for the New York Times, who basically started the journalistic process of of like ripping apart her company. And this was in the context of many, many publications praising her for being a woman who broke, broke through the glass ceiling, who's revolutionizing the healthcare industry. And he was one of the first journalists to go, hey, are we sure this works, though? Because, yeah, we're a few years out from our final prototype. But are we sure there's enough substance here to actually say that that's a true statement? And so... His book is essentially his summary of his years of reporting and, and things like that. It's excellent. It's excellent. I, I have to read the book, but I do have one more question. Mm. Like, did she 
did she at any point actually believe her own baloney? Do you know what I mean? Like, did she? I, I'm positive she believed every word of it. Right. So she actually thought she was about to revolutionize blood testing. I'm I'm pretty, I think from people, I, from I'm coming to the conviction, I think. Like, to her credit, she thought she was going to save lives and... Have you read Steve Jobs' biography? No. Okay. There's a cat man. There's a category of person, and I know this person well because I'm I am that person a little bit. Ooh. Who? Well, no. This kind of comes to the. This comes back to some of the conversations we've had on on this podcast about like Driscoll and Steve Jobs and these people who, I mean, I I guess you give them the credit of genuinely believing themselves, but it's not an informed belief in themselves maybe, but it's so powerful that they can do incredible things weirdly. And, and I, I know these, some of these people in real life, um, they, they just have such a force of personality that they get stuff done. People they, who, who have that strong of personality, they will accomplish something spectacular, but this, it might be a spectacular failure. Meaning mm, like you yeah. might, you yeah. might cause massive destruction. Yeah. Things will happen. Something, yeah, something will happen. Something will happen. Um, And so uh, for her, she was that kind of Steve Jobs type character in a lot of ways. Um, And which is what makes it so fascinating is she was Steve Jobs without the the chops to back it up. But but people wanted her to be that, you know? It's funny that you mentioned Mark Driscoll because this felt a lot like reading. It felt a lot like, like what it was like to go through the rise and fall of Mars Hill podcast, except for the fact that this was a lot less painful to read. Definitely some people were seriously hurt, like because of the psychological trauma of like the abuse that happened there. And then also some people, you know, with, with diff, in, inaccurate medical results, but overall I would say it wasn't as destructive as it could have been. Mm-hmm. And I think rise and fall of Mars Hill was an amazing listen, but also quite painful just hearing these real stories of spiritual trauma. And so I felt a little bit more di- I shouldn't even say that there wasn't damage here. Just I felt more disconnected from it, yeah. so it was a bit lighter reading. <laughs> yeah, and and also we're we're kind of throwing a lot of these names in here, and there could be more nuanced conversations about Driscoll and church hurt and and abuse and all these things that we're we're not having. So these are this is a kind of a flyby. So I don't want to I don't want to lump some of these people together without maybe needing to have a more thoughtful conversation. If that makes sense. But yeah, that was that book, uh, Bad Blood, John Carreyrou, like really recommend. It's great. I'm just going to jump ahead because I read Steve Jobs' biography by Walter Isaacson. Oh, you did? I did. It was so good. It was so good. Like one of my favorite books of all time. I'm like considering putting it in my top 10 because I enjoyed it so much. I, you know when you like you read a book and you're like, I don't know if it's because it's amazing or because I'm reading at the right time or if it's both. But I felt like, again, I was reading it at the right time of being like, I'm thinking about producing creative content, making products, uh, and doing, but also wanting to do that as like a person who's more committed to being there in my family, in my marriage, and with the church. And just like like we were saying already, he, uh, Steve Jobs, was such an incredible producer of content. Like I didn't even realize all the stuff he did. Mm-hmm. It blew my mind actually. And yet, at the same time, was a terrible friend, a, a really bad dad, and like had just a lot of broken relationships. Uh, but again, what you were saying, Jake, I resonated with different aspects of it. Like such a force of personality that he was able to like convince people that uh, a problem wasn't a problem and that they just need to figure it out and do it. And weirdly, it was like sometimes Steve Jobs was wrong, and then other times the engineers actually did just figure it out. 
And it was like this sort of weird thing of being like, when you're so optimistic that you're, as a leader, you're like, no, there is a solution. There is a way forward. And you just believe that and keep moving forward as if that is true. There's a strange way in which that actually can become true and yeah. become the reality that actually happens. Totally. And I think that's what makes it great is that it's not an easy moral. Like Bad Blood is, is a great book, but it's sort of a bit of an easy moral of like, this is bad. Don't do this. And then with Steve Jobs, it's it's quite complicated. And it's fascinating that someone like Elizabeth Holmes almost treated that book like her Bible, where she was like, mm. this is great. He's a hero. And then some people I know who have read it, who they were just absolutely disgusted by his actions and they had nothing but bad things to say. I, I would say I was more on the the disgusted side, but, but, but it, it's, I love that. I love that it's a complicated book yeah. with complicated morals because people are complicated. It felt very human. It's also just so well-written. Like it's for real, like as far as like the story's crazy, Steve Jobs did crazy stuff. It's like, you're feeling conflated. There's inspirational sides of it. You're also like, you're a bad person, but throughout the whole, the whole journey, like Walter Isaacson just was an incredible writer. Mm. And did I think you guys that, cry at the end. I don't remember crying at the I don't end. remember. I don't know why I did. I just was very emotional at the end. I think just because I had spent so much time with him. Mm. But anyway. Jess and I listened to it together. That's also a really fun thing to do. Mm. Um, and this was like one of those books that I was like, eh, it's quite long. It's like 665 pages. Mm. Do we really want to do this together? And we were like hooked. Mm. It's so good. It's awesome. My, my only other thought, man, so echoing what you guys are saying. Um, I think for, for almost everybody, it's just worth knowing that Steve Jobs and um, the Holmes, Sarah Holmes, whatever her name is. Elizabeth. Elizabeth Holmes. It's worth knowing those people exist. Mm. Um, and it's worth knowing that, in fact, most of the entrepreneurial type people you know in your life have a little bit of that in them. And that can go south. And, I, yeah, that's just good to, it's just good to know the kind of the portrait of some of the movers and shakers and how a lot of the movers and shakers in the world, they've, they've got this reality distortion field about them that I think is best explained in Steve Jobs' biography. And if you have influence, like, keep them accountable. And yeah, if you're oh, that yeah, person, yeah, yeah. get accountability, yada, yada, yada. That's the, the problem with all these people is that they didn't have accountability. Totally. There was nobody that they were responsible to. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jem, you're up next, I think. No, that was, that was his book. He jumped ahead. Okay. So sure. uh, yeah. my next book was Super Mario, How Nintendo Conquered America. Dog, this that's was, my next. Oh, very nice. Yeah, this was Owen's Recommend. I really recommend. It's, it's the not, next book of mine too. Okay, it's not a life-changing book, but it was a it was a fun, high-quality read. Um, the author was quite clever with his little occasional witty humor. It it's just I I didn't grow up with video games, but they're so pervasive in our culture that like I just recognized all the names. So it I think part of what was really compelling about the Steve Jobs thing is that you know so much about the technology like you grew up with it and so it feel the history is real. It's not just random history like Pixar and Yeah, phone, exactly. And stuff. Yeah, or even just remembering when mom and dad got like the first iPhone 2 or 3 or whatever whichever one they started with. It's just like, "Oh yeah, I remember this and this glitch that we don't have anymore." Um so so just hearing the history that we all of it was so fascinating i just there was also just some hilarious stories about the fact that like it was primarily a japanese company and so some of the things like you know he was jump man mario was jump man forever and the way he was named is like their annoying italian landlord who had a mustache kept interrupting their meeting and they were meeting about what to name mario and then he interrupted their meeting and they were like let's just name him mario like which is actually more of a compliment than an insult but i i still love that story like there's just it's great. Great little read. It's free on Audible. What are, you, what are you waiting for? Turn this podcast off. Go listen to it. It's fun. Facts, facts. Um, <laughs> Owen, 
you're looking pretty satisfied with yourself right now on this record. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing is, one of the things I was just not prepared for, because it's, it's next on my list too, uh, Jeff Ryan, what an incredible writer. And you had mentioned this on the podcast, and, and I, I grabbed Super Mario. He's making all of these classics references and Harry Potter references yeah. and these just little subtle moments just you can blaze right through them but if you know your classic literature it's the experience of reading it is hilarious because the class with which this guy writes is just next level and and I just loved that. I like I can't quite remember what some of the lines were. I know. I wish I'd I wish I had examples because he was very funny. I, I listened to this. I listened to this book in one shot, start to finish on a drive. What on a on a so on a drive? It's not to Louisville. long, but it's not short either. No, Louisville, Louisville Drive, right? Knocked it out in one go. And I, there were moments I was howling, laughing in my car. Mustachioed Odysseus. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was great. But and he he would like be. He generally wrote very kind of classic journalist not putting himself as a person but then he would just randomly throw in a sarcastic comment or like a and especially the audiobook reader read it in kind of a, a great little voice for it and it was it was just so charming great book yeah yeah I, I, I totally loved it sometimes it's the random titles that really make your day eh? yeah sorry what have been our favorite titles so far I don't know if anything's quite made it yet for me we're only okay. a few books I, I like the subtitle of How Nintendo Conquered America. So yeah. Jason Bauman, um, shout out to that subtitle. Yeah, yeah. I also like myself and Bob. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's actually my favorite one so yeah, far. Yeah, yeah, that's probably it. Um, All the Light We Cannot See uh, by Anthony uh, Doerr. Doerr? Uh, this one was... Do you guys remember earlier this year, we... so I think it was Jesse shared an interview with John Piper, where they're just kind of giving, like, fan questions to John Piper. Uh, like, you know, what's your favorite soda kind of thing? Yes. And so someone was like, what's your favorite book? And he ended up naming a few different books. Um, but this is one of the books that he names. Okay. Um, and it is fiction, and it is a novel taking place uh, in World War II. And it was actually a phenomenal, phenomenal book. Uh, it's hard... It's hard to kind of explain. It follows a few different characters, and it it takes a minute to kind of get into that because he jumps around to different characters. Some of them happening at different times as well, so that can be a little uh, disorienting. But he like phenomenal work of fiction. Uh, I, the only thing I will say is that just as a little, a little trigger warning, there is a, a pretty brutal scene when the Red Army moves through Germany later in the book. There's a, a bad uh, scene of sexual assault. So. Um, and that's always, yeah, that always like really gets me when I'm reading a book and I come across that. But other than that, like a phenomenal recommendation, recommendation from John Piper. If it's recommended by John Piper, it's like, like this is like the Holy Grail. Like, is it? Is that what that is? Oh yeah. Like yeah. This he has some other ones on, on there too. Okay. I remember reading somewhere that, that Piper, maybe in his earlier days was really into Ayn Rand too. And just found her philosophy fascinating. So I, he's he's an interesting cat. Um, Super Mario is next for me. We, we talked about that. The Lost World of Genesis 1 by John Walton. Uh, loved this book. I, w what he does really well is he's he basically wants, he, he's, you know, committed to, um, to uh, like the highest view of the Bible. 
he like believes that the authors of Genesis or author of Genesis one, two and three, the first part of the Bible or they knew exactly what they were writing and were writing, you know, very precisely. And, but he's like, it is helpful to know the context, the ancient Near Eastern context and helpful to, to try and get into the mind, the headspace of what someone, um, of what the ancient readers would be would be hearing and to know what other creation myths were floating around that were, you know, dialoguing and informing um, the ancient reader. So it's just a book that walks through that. And it's just helpful to kind of know some of that. We got some, some categories that I think we sometimes bring to the table that aren't the most helpful. Um, and, and I, I, yeah, he's a great conservative scholar and I just really, really enjoyed that. So. I, I highly recommend it. if anyone's kind of wrestling through all of the typical questions that whenever Genesis one gets brought up, the evolution conversation, the creation, science, all the things, I think it's a good book to throw into the rotation to try and kind of round out some, some thoughts on that. So I, I really liked it. I'm just going to do two. Cause, um, I don't really have that many thoughts on either one of these, um, lead like Christ by AW Tozer. Just a solid book. Uh, I got it for Christmas. Um, not too many thoughts. Like definitely convicting, but um, yeah, not too much there. Uh, the loveliest place: the beauty and the glory of the local church by Dustin Benge. Uh, so I took a class with him and bought this book. Uh, I really enjoyed it. It's quite short. Um, just trying to like meditate on like what it says: the beauty and the glory of the local church. I feel like that's something I've been thinking about this last four months a bunch, and I just really appreciate it. It's kind of just a, a sweet reflection on that. Cool. My next book was Sherlock Holmes, A Study in Scarlet. Um, I think Jermichael just lumped all of the books into one book because he read them all last year. Uh, the collection is absolutely massive, though. So, Okay, well... This is the first one that he ever wrote for Sherlock Holmes. I loved it. I've read I've read a, a few of them since then, and this has been my favorite one so far. I thought the story format was fascinating. It's like the first half is kind of a story about Sherlock Holmes, and then the second half just randomly jumps Into over, the, yeah, to, the over to America with the Mormons. It's so weird. So weird. I legitimately thought that the first story just had a terrible ending, and then I was on the yes. second story, and I was like, and then suddenly it all comes full circle. Great format. It was so fun. I loved this one. It's great. It's it's very fun reading a book that you're like engaged by, but you're looking at the structure like kind of from a meta perspective, and you're like, "How's this working?" Like, yeah. I don't understand why this works. Yeah, because I think yeah, some people are super big on which I'll actually talk about later, um, on in a different book. But some people are really big on like this is the story format and it has to follow this. And I think that's like it's kind of like you need to know the rules before you break it. And there's a, there's a few <laughs> books I've read like like uh, what was the book Chloe and I loved. Um, the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes that mm. follows a very unconventional story format. We can talk about, we can debate that later. Let's not debate it on here. I think it follows a pretty unconventional story format. It feels episodical and I thought it was cool. So like when you see someone who does it and they pull it off, I enjoy that. Yeah. We talked about it last book podcast, but I just want to highlight again. When I listened to that book with Jess, I was thrown for a loop so many times. Yeah. <laughs> and by the end, I literally was just shell shocked. And then I was like, <laughs> but it's so exactly what should have happened. Like, I just couldn't believe that it was the backstory of Jon Snow. And then it also was like, but this is so in his character. Yeah. It was just really well written. Very clever. It was really, really neat. All right. My next book is Sexual Detox by Tim Challies, which I had only ever partially read before. I had like 
done a non-finish on this before, decided to finish it. So it's such a small <laughs> done book. Done a non-finish? Yeah. That's kind of a funny way of saying you, you're midway through a book. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, you, 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 <laughs> yeah, well, you, you put it down. You're like, I'm not reading this anymore. Um, so wait, wait. I like that that makes it sound like you accomplished more than you did. Like, it's like I have completed a non-finish. <laughs> That's how I'm going to describe all of my failed projects going forward. <laughs> Whenever I read a book, I'm going to say like, yeah, I didn't do a non-finish. <laughs> You wish, yeah. <laughs> um. Anyway, it's a, it's a very small book. I don't know why I didn't yeah. finish it before, but uh, yeah. Honestly, I don't know. I don't. I didn't find that necessarily cracked open the subject too much for me. But it's not a new subject for me. It's oh, sorry. I should say what it's about. Sexual detox is about guys quitting pornography, uh, and and how you should and the how go how to go about it. But Tim Chow is a good author. Yeah. It's I've I've talked to Tim about about that book and he kind of he he has a good sense of humor all the time and he's just kind of like eh the book he's like I wrote it because I couldn't find anything I liked more at the time and he wrote it a long time ago yeah 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 and so and he's like yeah he told me he's like he kind of laughed he's like yeah I think there are better books out there right now and I, that's I think that takes a uh, that takes a lot of humility of a writer to be like yeah I think my book's been surpassed right there's something about a book being written at like in a time and a place. Like not all books are going to be like classics forever or so good, but something that like moves a cultural ball forward on an issue. I kind of appreciate that about his book. Cause same, it's not really like when I've read it, it's not really the book I would recommend to someone. Not that it's bad. It's just, there's better books out there, but I think he pulled open the door for like evangelicals and then let Heath Lambert and Garrett Kell and a bunch of others like really open it up after that valid all right buckle up boys project hail mary by andy weir i refuse to have a book podcast in six months without you guys having read this book that's not that's not true but (laughs) i i guys how many of you guys have read the martian by andy weir well well heck do you have to read that first? No, not at all. They're completely different books. The Martian was made... Okay, have you guys seen the movie, The Martian? No. Okay. Yes. Owen has. Yes. Okay, and Jesse too. Oh, every part about this book. And here's, here's, so here's what I loved. What I, I'm so grateful for the book. I read it purely on the Andy Weir. I was like, Andy Weir, good author. I need me a piece of fiction right now in life. So I just downloaded the book, started listening without a ghost of a clue about the plot. And I'm so grateful that I did that. Well, then don't tell us anything. Don't tell us anything. <laughs> okay. Just, I, so it, I added to my recommend. You don't have to tell me anything. Okay. But I'm going to, I'm going to add one hook because I've, I've thought about this. I've thought about how to hook this book without giving away like almost any of it. And here, here's what I'm going to say. What if the sun started dying? And what if all the stars that we could find started dying? except one and we had to figure out why because it's game over in about 15 years and that just kickstarts a whole series of pure science madness just it is such a good read and then bat 30 percent into the book hurls you for a loop and then the end is just i cried it was 
it's just such an excellent book. I don't think there are any swear words in there. I th- I'm pretty sure, like, it's just purely interesting. It is a massive... Oh, no, no I'm not going to give that away. There's another element of this book that just is so good. But You've already sold me. You, okay. can, you can... No, I'm selling other people, too, right? Oh, I, yeah. We, we are doing I a I forgot podcast. that there's other people listening <laughs> to this. <laughs> Anyways. Listeners, listeners, are you hearing, Jacob? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Read the book, listeners. <laughs> Read the darn book. Um, audiobook. Aud- I did audiobook. It's incredible in audiobook. Um, bing, bang, bong. Highly reco. Uh, my next book is Christianity and Liberalism by uh, J. Gresham Machen. Uh, this was for a course. And, you know, again, it's kind of the same thing I was saying before about, like, it's interesting reading a book that was in a place in time. I agreed with every word in the book. But... Say, say when it was written. Uh, I don't remember. 1920s. Okay. So, 1920s. Okay. There was just a ton of liberalism coming into the church. Uh, and he wrote this as the rebuttal and it was incredibly influential, uh, like really, really good walks through, uh, just the different kind of liberal streams of Christianity that were making its way into the seminaries, into the churches, into teaching and kind of hits it head on. Um, I guess the thing that I've like, I read it and I was like, this is all good, but because I already agreed with him and was like, I'm not even interested. Like, I don't agree with any of these liberal arguments it did sort of fall flat on me but not because it's not a great book like i think it's a classic for a reason and people should still read it but i just didn't get a ton out of it because it's like i already have heard these arguments because they were so influential and have shaped uh you know how seminary is done and and this is a book that's often required reading so i get that Okay, my next book was The Enneagram for Spiritual Transformation. Um, Hannah lent me this book. Um, She hadn't even read it yet, though, so it wasn't like a recommend per se. Uh, I think I just haven't been like a huge fan of the Enneagram, so I kind of felt like I should stop making fun of it or critiquing it if I haven't read anything about it. But I didn't actually research like a good book about it. It was just sort of like this one just sort of fell into my lap. Mm. Um, And it was was definitely an interesting read, but it's not like a book you should start learning about this with it was just sort of like if you are already on board with it it's it's an interesting looking at it through a spiritual lens so it was interesting but i I don't really have much to say about it uh my next book is interpreting your world by justin bailey um this was a book that was required for my school um for one of the core courses and it was a kind of a cool concept he was basically this had this idea that there's five lenses through which you can view culture um any culture and uh, what were they? They were meaning, power, ethics, religion, and aesthetics. Mm. And so there's these five different lenses, how to think about your culture and how to interpret your culture through these different lenses. Uh, he had some cool concepts, and it was a basically decent premise. Um, I think the book was held back by the fact that it was minimally edited, in my mm. opinion, mm. and actually not necessarily super well written. Mm. Like a verbose writer, but not necessarily an easy writer to read. Mm. Um, I don't know if you've ever had this where you're reading a book and you're like, okay, I think you're trying too hard. Like you've got, you've got, you've got multiple metaphors going at the same time. Right. And if, if you almost feel like it's one of those people, you know, you, how many p- plates can I have spinning at the same time kind of thing? You're like, okay, you need to let at least one of these analogies go and they're not melding well. And like n- now we're having to move on to this next chapter and you're still making references that are like, oh yeah, that's to that metaphor. I have to like go back and read that analogy and figure out how this fits now into this chapter. Ugh. 
It's just actually, I don't think it was well written in my opinion. Yeah, I'm not trying to like diss my own writing or anything, but like sometimes when I read a book and I'm like, this reminds me of my own journaling or something, that's like a bit of a red flag where it's like, yeah, it it seems like my own first drafts, so that's not good. Right. It does sound like you're just your writing there, Jesse. I'm sure that's not true. Mm-hmm. It does sound like you were dissing your writing. Well, the thing is, I haven't tried to really write many things other than that one short story I wrote for other people. And so, first off, I'm barely editing myself. And then secondly, I haven't gotten other people editing, again, except with the exception of that one short project. And so I sort of know what unedited writing looks like because I've written a lot of unedited writing. So <laughs> when I read writing that feels like that, it, it, it just smells of amateurism or whatever you want to call it. So I know, I know what you're talking about, that, that kind of flavor. Yeah. For the record, Jesse's short story about the gargoyle was fantastic. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Am I next? It's because Chloe edited it. And Owen. <laughs> Mostly Chloe. <laughs> so I bopped out to, to make a coffee that didn't work. Um, am I next? Am I? Yep. Cool, cool. Um, the Holy Spirit by Sinclair B. Ferguson. Um, we need was... to get back to naming children Sinclair. <laughs> <laughs> like, if Jess bears our child today... Jess bears her child today. I commit to naming him Sinclair. Whoa. Does she know that? No. <laughs> do you do you know if it's a boy or girl? Yes. It's baby boy. So it's this baby boy. Oh, that so raises Sinclair the stakes on the even line. more. It is on the line. It's a, that doesn't actually raise the stakes that much. Can you imagine if it was a girl and you named her Sinclair? <laughs> I feel like that those are stakes. Those are stakes. <laughs> it's our daughter, Sinclair. What are you doing? <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Walk with me though. Sinclair's kind of a it's 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 a bit of a it's got a bounce to it. It's, it's just because you hear the word Claire in there, and you're like, yeah. Claire is a girl's Sincla- name. Sinclair. <laughs> I could. I could. Awesome. I can buy it. I can see that as a girl name. Apart from the fact that it's not, but like, you know. Next thing you know, Jake's naming his daughter Montgomery. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, the Holy Spirit. It's uh, it was really good. Um, he Sinclair B. Ferguson wrote a handful of of kind of of theology books. I was required to read this for Systematic Three by the great and powerful Stephen Wellam. And he's, I love him. I love the fact that he recommends difficult books to read. Uh, and, and this was, was a slog and I'm grateful for that because for a bunch of reasons, it was great. It's a, it's a theology book. Highly recommend it. Uh, if you, if you want to do a, do a deep dive into elements of the Holy Spirit, send it, you know? Next on my list is reading backwards by Richard B. Hayes. Uh, this is really good. This is on biblical hermeneutics. Um, and specifically on the Gospels, how the Gospels are a mode of hermeneutical reading of the Old Testament. Just that uh, Matthew in particular, but all of the Gospel narratives, read the Old Testament through a very unique lens and use Scripture in ways that I think we would be uncomfortable with. And we all know like Scripture interpreting Scripture is one of the most basic like hermeneutical principles but he tries to like break down, okay, why uh, did the gospel writers read backwards like this? So it's 109 pages. It's a good little short read if you want to get something on the gospels and hermeneutical interpretation. Okay. Uh, my we, next... we, just, uh, we just saw Jesse pour milk into a, is that a margarine tub? Something like that. It's just the way I transported my cereal from this morning. 
I, love I didn't that. get the chance to eat breakfast before we came, and I don't. You can't be hungry on the book podcast. It's just it's true. It's not a good. It's not a good vibe. Um. Okay, so my next book was "In the Name of Jesus" by Henry Nowen. So, have you read any Nowen this year, Jermichael? Jermichael just made a face like he's I, pumped. I did, and I wanted to read more after it. So uh, me too. So just his tone is just okay. So Henry Nowen was a Catholic priest and a professor at Yale for most of his life but left to work at uh, L'Arche, which is these live-in community homes for mentally disabled folks. Um, yeah, he is Catholic, but he does seem to have a lot of fans in the evangelical and even reformed world. Like my pastor is actually doing his PhD on Henry Nouwen. Um, so I've, I've j- just had a lot of friends who spoke really highly of his writing. And I kind of finally just, this was one of the books that was on our shelf. I think Chloe owned it. And so I picked it up. Very short little devotional that the structure of it, I won't get super deep into it, but the, the chapter titles were like from rev from relevance to prayer, from, from popularity to ministry and from leading to being led. I was really moved by this book. Like hmm. pr- I think I cried multiple times reading it. It just, wow. I, I, I don't know. It was just, he's, his, uh, heart posture is just really beautiful. I appreciate him. I would recommend any book by him, even though I've only read two, which I'll talk about the other one later. I, I felt that a little bit reading up. Yeah. I'll just throw it out there. I read spirituality of fundraising, hmm. um, super short, but I just really like was struck by, I felt like this man has such a heart for the Lord and for the church and just to serve people. And yeah. that like came through, of course, in his words. Uh, but like, if he was in the room with you, you would feel a pastoral, Yes. A vibe. And I don't even know how that necessarily came out in the writing, but it did. You know, you know, when people, so again, he, he sort of gave up his prestigious and sort of famous, at least in the academic world life to, to live there. And you know, when people sort of say the trite, like, you know, I actually think I learned more from them than they did for me, that kind of thing, like in, in missions work or in volunteering work, like it can come, it can be very trite and cheesy. But when he sort of described that you believed him, mm. you believed that his life was really changed by moving into service. And like I said in the chapter titles, like from leading to being led from from popular, popularity to ministry, from relevance to prayer. It was just a great, mm. great reminder and, and his heart. Anyway, we're, we're saying the same things over and over now, but I agree with you. It sounds it sounds very good, um, but now I'm noticing that I think we've all mentioned crying at a book so far. Um, are we are we very prone to crying, gentlemen? Is this? I think I've cried more in books than movies. Interesting. I I would say I very rarely cry to a book, but you're talking about crying multiple times in this book. Um, you just what you just said, Jesse, just a moment ago. Yeah. No. Nothing's more likely to make me cry than than um, books or or music. Okay, interesting. Interesting. I I think I think I can only think of two books in my my life of reading. Oh well, no, now if I'm thinking back into my teens, I can think of a third. The first book I ever cried at was The Yearling. Hey, yes. Me too. Really? Okay. Um, so hard. Yeah. Okay. The last page sent me. Right? Like the I, I was Where not did expecting it send that. You? To Sheol? No, just kidding. Um, no, it wasn't. Jesse, no. No, it's complicated because it's not like de- it's not like straight up depressing of like I hate the world. It's it's just 
I don't know if you guys know this, but Andrew Peterson, not everyone is necessarily a fan of his music, but he has an entire album about the yearling and how it moved him. It's not like Whoa. it's not like a concept album based on it, but it's musings in that vein of like childhood remembrances, pets dying, things like that. Just basically the death of innocence. Where it's like some, I think that's why a lot of those books and movies like Old Yeller and things like that hit is because the animal dying is really sad, but it symbolizes the death of the child's innocence. I like get You're behind so deep the sim the symbolism there. I can get behind, but I feel like when I think of like pets dying in my childhood, I think of like butchering rabbits and like eating them for dinner later. And maybe you're, I'm you're heartless. a sociopath, so you <laughs> don't have the same childhood that we had as normal people. Sorry, that was too, way too harsh. The, I take it back. Uh, on the non sociopath couch over there. So I don't know. The yearling, the yearling definitely got me. That was a big one, especially. Okay, I, I don't. I'm not. This is not the book I'm going to be talking about. But like, the moment in the yearling where, like, I had a moment where I suddenly felt really sorry for his mom. And like, and she'd been kind of like a really hard character to love in the book. And then like, you know, then she, yeah, I don't know. Shot the, she shot the deer, right? Is that what happened at the end there? Crazy. No, I think you're mixing up with old yeller. Although I think the kid, shoots so, it. so I, I was think just... in the yearling, the deer just, he lets it go into the woods or something. No, I'm definitely thinking of the yearling with this. Hmm. Have you guys read old yeller? There, there's definitely a moment though where you, uh, yeah. Also where the red fern grows is another one in the same mm. kind of genre. That that one will get you too. But I've only cried at three books. I'm going to get through this. The Yearling, What is a Girl Worth? Yes. And All the Light We Cannot See. Wow. That yeah. that went up as up there. Yeah, right? it just made the very short list of books that have actually made me actually made me cry. Um so my next book is Hamlet by Shakespeare. I don't know if I don't know like it's a, it's a play. It isn't it's bound like a book. I'm including it. Um so yeah. Hamlet by Shakespeare. How, how did that uh, how did it hit you reading Shakespeare? Um fine. I also I also watched it. I watched the David Tennant version <laughs> <laughs> so that I could enjoy that as well. Um and I actually tried to like watch and read at the same time kind of thing. Uh but it didn't work out perfectly because I didn't completely follow the the play right. in the David Tennant rendition. Um I would I would say it was good. I also got to do Hamlet. It was part of a a course I was taking. So I had the the privilege of having Dr. Ben Faber uh sort of walking me through it as we went. So shout out to Adrian Faber's dad. Owen. Hello. Does your cuff the cuff of your does it say LOL? <laughs> It does say LOL. <laughs> so I I am addicted to like custom tailored shirts. And the thing is, the first time you do it and they're like, yo, the monogram is free. You're like, I mean, hit me up. <laughs> and you have your initials put on, right? But then at some point you're looking at your shirt. My and initials are L-O-L. <laughs> Lawrence Oswald Lafay. <laughs> but then at some point you're just looking at your shirts in your closet and they've got your initials and you're like, that's what what, what a douchebag thing to do. So then in the future, oh you <laughs> in the future, I get now I have a whole collection of like monogram shirts, but they have all kinds of different like three letter things going on. Like I've got like uh yeah, QED, LOL. I have actually a few with LOL on them. I've got 
uh, FTW for For the Win. I've got uh, uh, WIP for Work in Progress. <laughs> that one's kind of wholesome, actually. <laughs> oh, and can you please get one? The next one be BB for Book Boys. <laughs> Let's go. Yeah, for so, sure. So for, for anyone who has, uh, if you had just told me what this was, I would have no idea what you're talking about. You're, so you've got the cuff of your sleeve and just peeking through the jacket, uh, through your the, your blazer is just em- embroidered, I guess, on the edge of it is just LOL. And it's so subtle. It's hilarious. See, a lot of the people I know who have that, it's usually the initials of them and their wife because it's like they bought a wedding suit and they were like, oh, you can get a monogram and you could like put your initials or the date of your wedding or something. So I love that this is LOL. That's just fantastic. That's so funny. My next book is um, Liberty for All by Andrew T. Walker. Uh, I love Walker. I love Dr. Walker. He's he's fantastic. He's our ethics professor. He, um, yeah, this book was really, um, it was really, it was a distinctly Baptist case for religious liberty. And I, I really liked it. Um, I think even if you're not of the Baptist persuasion, you could definitely, there's definitely stuff like just broader reformed that you just like, yes and amen to. And he made me really, I think one of the things he did in the book was really focus on like, where are we in the church right now? And if you believe, and there's, there's tension here, there's different perspectives, but if you believe that it is not our job to bring the kingdom, to ultimately bring the kingdom on earth, like it is not our Christian duty to, you know, to, to make the ultimate like theocracy arrive, Th- then whose duty is that? Ultimately, it's Christ. And then the second coming, that'll be then who will trans. You know, will be under the full, I guess, political rule of Christ, if if you want to use that term. And then, if it is ultimately for Christ to do that, then religious liberty makes sense because we're not called to make to to abolish other religions from our, our state and like, and all the political implications of that. So it's basically the eschatological reality of where the church is leads rise to a good, healthy view of Christian liberty, uh, of religious liberty more broadly, which is why it is right and good to, according to this perspective, right and good to have the, the Muslim living amongst you in a way that he can worship like we can. And, and we're called to evangelize and absolutely, but to have freedom of religion, to, to force that Muslim or to force that Christian from a different denomination to worship in the exact same way you believe is right is ultimately Christ's duty in the right time, not ours right now. That's that's a oversimplified rough pitch. And I just thought that was some really, there's some really good thoughts in that book. And I was, I'm glad I read it. I love all that. It's just my only thought is like, who is that controversial for? <laughs> lots, lots of people. Well, uh, all the Christian Christian nationalist movements, which are getting hot and hot. Uh, Oh yeah, I guess you're right. And a lot of reformed actually. So, so like, like Calvin's Geneva was uh, like a religious city. Like you couldn't, there was, there was a lot of reformed tradition does not have a, a yeah, I guess I just thought that that was one of the things where people just sort of like, we're going to look the other way with that with Calvin, as opposed to like, we celebrate this about him. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just saying that there's reformed traditions and, and they have the reasons for for wanting to say, like, no, you don't get to be a practicing Muslim in our city. that That's not a category in which we... And I can see the reason why, right? It, it, it flows into your view of the law and, like, the, you know, the Mosaic Law's relevance for the Christian institution. And this, there's big yeah. theological conversations. But there's, well, I mean, a lot of, all of Catholicism 
does would not, uh, or at least all of Catholic history would not be very pro uh, make pro I, I having guess, a place yeah, for the pagan. I in guess your midst. I meant who is this controversial for in Canada in 2023? But now that you say it, I guess there is more people than I would necessarily think about like maybe it's just not controversial for like my immediate circles mm-hmm. yeah yeah um, yeah i don't you wouldn't find anything controversial in it um there's a couple baptist flares in there that i might... think i'm more interested in the very behind with the first thing you talked about less so than maybe the implications like the the idea of like f- thinking through like entering into the kingdom of heaven as opposed to building the kingdom of heaven that's yeah. something i had to think about recently where i sort of took for granted where i would talk about building the kingdom and it's like not the worst phrase you can say or anything but it's yeah. not as correct as it could be yeah there's uh this is one of the books that it would be helpful for especially if when you're thinking in a little more politically politically mm-hmm. is a helpful way to to think through this so, cool liberty for all ng t walker awesome 1010 reco great thank you for listening to this podcast's conversation i really appreciate it if you enjoyed it consider subscribing and sharing and all that jazz it's immensely helpful I'm all about having meaningful, interesting conversations. So if you know of someone I should talk to, hit me up on Instagram at It's the Volk. Have a good one, guys.